Welcome to the Kickstart Podcast, where we highlight the stories of how professionals kickstarted and navigated their successful careers. My name is Preston, and on this episode, we have the pleasure of hosting someone who worked as a software engineer at both Facebook and Google, founded a startup that eliminated the complexity behind paying back student loans, and is now the director of engineering at Tenant, a company that is building a financial platform that empowers people to live sustainably. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, when you say it like that, it uh, paints a very different picture than the way it feels. We do our best. Um, thank you again. Really grateful for your time. I think uh, a, a fitting way to also get started is just by giving it back to you, Steve. For those that don't know who you are, who might be unfamiliar with your background, would you mind just sharing a little bit more about yourself? Well, um, let's see. I, I I didn't go to college for for software to 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 start off there. Um, I went for sociology, and and it wasn't until about uh, my junior year of college that I got into it completely by accident. I went uh, for pre law, which which I think is is super interesting. I I love, in fact, the the idea of how you could apply software to the legal profession. I think is has been kind of slept on uh, until recently. And um, if you if you follow some of the things that are taking place on LinkedIn, like it's super exciting to to watch that industry kind of explode, especially with the the kind of new advances in AI. None of that was on my mind at the time. Um, it was, how do I get into law school? Junior in college, you need to think about that. So that means uh, that means resume padding, and that means going to interviews for research positions. I had this um, this one interview I went to with a guy named Christopher Bale, and God, I hope he sees this. Uh, and if you've ever uh, had an interview where it just like gels, right? Like you you go in there and every question hits perfectly. You feel like like there's, you got a rapport. And we get to the interview and end of the interview. And he's like, uh, so do you know Python? I was like, uh, like the snake? <laughs> yeah, I know Python. So that was like a Wednesday and I got an email on like Friday. It's like, congratulations. We've decided to bring you on as a technical research assistant to the Christopher Bale Research Project for assessing knowledge transfer across online entities. Can you have a basic web crawler up by Monday? And I was like, yeah, can do. And then I Google like, what is Python? I, I got into it completely by accident. Um, and and it was a little bit of a, well, I don't know if there's an appropriate word I can say on the podcast, but but it didn't go well. Uh, I tried to download all of Wikipedia by accident and I did it in the graduate research assistant computer lab, which got the graduate research assistant computer lab at Michigan blocked from Wikipedia, which turns out they don't like that. That didn't go well. I also deleted like six months of data by accident because I tried to format it in place. Also not a good thing when you don't have backups. So it it really was not a good start. I made pretty much every mistake that you can possibly make in, in my pursuit of trying to do this. And at the end of the semester, Chris took me aside and he's like, look, you're terrible at this. So there, there's two options. One, we can I can let you go. Or two, you can take a computer science course. Um, so I took computer science 101 at Michigan um, and I failed it. And so I took it again and I got a C plus and that was passing. So I took the level two course and I failed it. And that kind of forced me to have a very like heart to heart with myself about, I need to stop taking these courses because they're tanking my GPA, which already is not great, or I need to commit. So which is it going to be? And for me, I realized that even though I was absolutely miserably failing at this profession, I loved doing it. I loved coding. And so I doubled down. I went to summer courses uh, and came in at like 7 a.m. to the computer lab and coded all day and all night and and went from a C minus student to an A plus student. And that led to starting like doing like TA positions at the, the college. And that led to recruiters wanting to pay attention to me at at, uh, at career days. That led to, you know, a job offer at Facebook. And that led to a job offer at YouTube. And I don't know, next thing you knew, it was, uh, you know, full-time fang. That's amazing. What about coding at that time uh, really, really intrigued you? You said that you love coding. Why did you love coding? I think it was that there's a definitive answer. You know, I, I think everyone's experienced that frustrating English class experience where you um, where you turn in a paper that you worked really hard on and you feel like argues the point really well and it gets like a B minus because the teacher doesn't agree with it. I found there to be kind of a canonical solace in coding in that either the code is correct or it's not. And there's absolutely no arguing about whether or not it works if it doesn't work. You know, style is one thing, but at the end of the day, like you either completed the assignment or you didn't. Mm -hmm. And that was meaningful for me in a way that that other professions hadn't been previously. Mm -hmm. I, I had a, a this experience where where I went up to 
the teacher to ask for an extension on this uh, assignment. And this was Mary Lou Dorf at the University of Michigan, who's probably my favorite teacher ever for this reason. And the student in front of me was asking, you know, can, can she have an extension as well? You know, because her grandmother died and she had to go away this weekend. And Mary Lou Dorf said, sure, just show me the certificate of death and you'll get this, the extension. And I thought that was incredible because I was a, I was the kind of student that would definitely do whatever I could to find ways to like, you know, uh, to get around like the edges of the assignment, you know, do it at the last minute, uh, you know, copy the out of the back of the book, um, you know, use Google Translate to do my work for me in high school. And here was this just immovable force of, of Mary Lou Dorf that could not be bamboozled, could not be cheated. You know, it's you either get it right and you do it or no points. And that made the achievement of it meaningful for me in a way that my educational experience hadn't been in the past. Thank you for sharing that. Did you at any point reconsider like going back to law or were you just so after your first couple of experiences with the coding, you're just sucked in where you're like, you know what, this is what I want to do. I want to commit. I want to create a career out of this. No looking back. I think that after I got a couple courses deep, um, maybe like, you know, within six months to a year of of committing in that kind of heart to heart moment, it was pretty clear that software is becoming the foundation of every industry. And so there wasn't a lot of doubt in my mind that this was the correct path to take coming out of college, because no matter what industry I want to be involved in, or I become passionate about this base set of skills is gives me an entry point to that profession. Can you share with the audience just how you got your first uh, jobs at Facebook and Google, like how did that go? Did you just cold apply? Did a recruiter reach out to you? Was it through a, an event? And what did you do while you were there? Sure. Um, let's see. Uh, the first step was definitely going to the events. You know, uh, organizations like Facebook and Google come to campus, you know, at, at the university to do events. And you don't have to be on the university's student list to attend those events. But the actual recruiters for you know, out-of-college entry positions are the ones hosting and leading those events. And you can attend them. You can learn about all of the recruiters' tips for how you can make your application better and how you can prepare for the interviews. And you can also get FaceTime such that the recruiter will remember you. So that's guaranteed the first step. Going to career fairs you know, if in the university uh, flow is also really helpful because those same recruiters will show up again. You can say, "Hey, Hal, I remember you from the, you know, the 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 event that you hosted," and uh, you know, that's a great way to get yourself a recruiting day interview. There are other ways, but uh, you know, networking seems to be a very important thing to do. Absolutely. And so, when you join these respective companies, that a lot of people obviously recognize in terms of the brand, what did you work on? What, what were some of the memorable kind of highlights during your time there? Boy, um, my first work was at Facebook on the LiveRail platform. They had just acquired this um, this uh, ads platform called LiveRail that did video ads, and uh, they needed to optimize their their curation process so that so they could decide which landing pages were kind of quality and safe to put ads on quickly with less manual review. I I don't remember anything about that work, but I do remember. <laughs> The live rail team had just been acquired at Facebook. And so, you know, I, I had my first day at Facebook, you know, this is your company banner on the wall experience, you know, uh, kind of very similar to the, uh, if you've ever seen like the internship, you know, uh, kind of that, that intro celebration experience and it's wonderful. And then I went to meet my team and they're like, uh, and I'm like, Hey, like, what's it like at Facebook? They're like, we don't know. We just got here too. And I'm like, so what are we going to work on? They're like nothing. Cause we're going to France for the week. Do you want to come? So I spent my very first week at Facebook in Paris on Bastille day, celebrating the acquisition of live rail with the live rail team, which, which was a wild introduction into Fang and, and kind of just Silicon Valley culture. It's uh, it's very different from the Midwest where I was raised as for work. Um, are you more interested in me talking about the 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 projects that I first worked on, or the you know, or later, or you know, um, what's what's the best shape here for you? Yeah, I, I would say because the focus is not specifically on your time at these companies, just for the audience, the highlight. What what, what was a 
memorable, you shared maybe a, you shared an experience at Facebook. What about Google? What was like a big project or a big product you worked on that you, that you're proud to this day or that you very much enjoyed? Boy. Um, I think the, the most, um, the most interesting thing that I worked on was, uh, Stadia back when I joined, it wasn't called Stadia. It was, uh, called Yeti because, uh, we, you know, it wasn't, uh, externally launched yet. And I, I think that was a very cool experience to work on a pre-launched product. We had our own building and our own security guard that like vetted your badge when you came in the door and all the shades were pulled down so no one could see in. And there, my job was to help build out the live streaming infrastructure for um, for Stadia so that, uh, you know, with a push of a button, you can take your, your gaming experience and cast it on like YouTube, uh, kind of in a way that's comparable with Twitch. Very cool. For people who are just curious, again, between like Facebook or now Meta and Google, what was like the main difference in your experience just with the culture with both companies and what, which of those, uh, which of the companies did you enjoy working at more? I know it's a loaded question, but I have to ask Steve. <laughs> oh, it's a very fair question. Um, I think that um, personally, my experience was that Facebook is, is very, um, very about putting the hours, get the work done, you know, go, go, go. And, uh, you know, and we're going to make sure that you're getting the work done. And Google's approach was just antithetical to that of, uh, here's what you need to get done. Now, here are all these fun things you can do. You know, here's a, here's the, the, the micro kitchen, the here, here's a foosball tournament that you're mandatorily enrolled in. And also there's a giant tag game going on outside right now. And you are your own boss. You know, the, here is the, here, here are the expectations. As long as you get that done, we don't care how you get it done or when. If, if you don't, then we're going to have a conversation. Um, but until then, you know, there's, there's a lot of delegated trust. And, and I found that to be so refreshing coming from, from Facebook, where it felt like if you would leave before 5.30, 6 o'clock, like you would get some looks. Wow. That's very insightful. And then last question about these two companies. For people who are listening in and who might be interviewing, or I don't know how many interviews they're doing right now, but who might want to interview with these companies into the future, uh, what are some maybe tips or advice that you can share if uh, they want to get respective jobs at Meta and Google that work well for you? Let's see. Um, well, we talked a little bit about how you can get your name in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think something that you should do that I can't provide any particular color on is resume. You know, make sure that you have a good resume. Everyone says it, but that doesn't make it not important. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, do you think you have a good resume? It's, are you getting your resume peer reviewed by some senior peers? So, you know, if, if that means shooting your resume to, you know, some person that you respect that is a couple levels higher than you in some other industry and having them look at it, like, good. You know, it's just that your resume isn't, isn't, uh, valued by what you think about your resume. It's valued about how, what other people think about your resume. So that's step one. Prepping for interviews. Uh, Fang has a pretty open and shut interviewing process. You will get a phone screen. You might get another phone screen, and then you'll get an onsite. Each of those phone screens is pretty short. The first one is usually just a filtering call where they might ask you, like, you know, uh, how would you... Uh, how would you create a relational system for tweets if you were designing Twitter? You know, and as long as your answer isn't uh, terrible, you're probably going to get moved on. You know, the the next phone screen is is usually a technical of like let's write code. You know, and here's an interview question, and provided you pass that, you go to the onsite. Onsites are usually five interviews. You get two hour long interviews that are both technical. Then you get a uh, kind of a lunch period, which is you know more of a reverse interview. You ask the the engineer you're spending lunch with about what life is like at the company, et cetera. And then in, after lunch, you have two more interviews, both hour long. They tend to be fairly focused on the same subjects, uh, which is whiteboarding interview questions. I know that Google does a culture fit now, which is interesting. And I'd be happy to talk some about that, but as for how to do well in a whiteboarding interview, I think there are a couple of very specific things that, that are important to do well. One is to prepare. There is a fairly gospel book called Cracking the Coding Interview, which I, I wholeheartedly re recommend to anyone that is trying to get ready for a coding interview. 
you might learn everything from it. You might learn nothing from it. But I do know that going through that book from start to finish is the tried and true way to establish a baseline of technical readiness for a coding interview at Fang. Going forward from that, getting in the room, it's important to be humble. You know, the 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 emphasis is not about having the right answer. Um, if if it were a if it were, do you know the answer to this question? It would be a multiple choice, you know, and, and you wouldn't be there in person. The interview is about how do you solve the problem? What is your thought process? How do you work through problems where you don't know the answer at first? And that's what you want to show to the interviewer. So a couple of things are very important. One, you talk, you talk, you talk, you talk, you tell the interviewer how you're working through the problem. You don't, you don't go silent for 15 minutes and then run out of time because then the interviewer has no information about how you attempted to solve the problem. Um, if you if you go quiet for 30 minutes and then you start writing on the board the, the answer, the interviewer also has no information about how you solve the problem. However, what I would add to that fairly well-known guidance is that you don't have to talk immediately. So at the start of the interview, after you hear the question, I've always said to my interviewer in whiteboarding interviews, Okay, I'm going to take about you know 30 seconds to a minute now just to think about the problem and kind of organize my ideas. And then I'm going to start talking. And the interviewer always says, okay. And then I do. It's so much easier to shape your thoughts and, and architect an initial approach if you just have some time when you don't have to be talking. And that's always worked really well for me. Mm. Coming back to that humility aspect, sometimes interviewers will offer hints, corrections, suggestions, and, and I think it's so important to recognize the conversation that's happening there in that moment. The interviewer did not have to say anything. They they could have remained completely silent and watched you do the thing that they didn't like and write it down and end the interview. But they provided feedback. And for that reason, you know, you should be humble in how you accept it. If you say, Oh yeah, well, I was gonna get to that in a minute anyway. So like, you know, thanks, thanks for saying it, but like I already had it handled. Like that's that's not a that's not a good signal. And it doesn't show a good signal for will this person work well with others in a professional work environment? Instead, oh, that's a great call out. Yeah, I think we could fit that in over here. You know, it it's more important to show that you that you are capable of accepting feedback integrating it with your process and and moving forward in a constructive way than it is to show that you already knew the answer to that. Wow. Absolutely amazing, amazing insights, Steve. I, I'm confident that whoever listens to this podcast, they want to apply to Fang, they'll get the job thanks to your uh, wonderful insights and, and experience. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. We can, of course, talk about Fang for hours and hours of end, but I definitely want to thank you just for sharing a little bit about kind of broad strokes, your experience, and just uh, how you were able to just do really, really well and, and get these fantastic jobs. Now, what I'm also curious about moving throughout, uh, moving forward uh, in your career is that people could easily stay at Fang for the rest of their career, right? For a lot of people, it's like the grail of all jobs that you can get in tech. You land a job in Google, you work, and you can ride off in the sunset happy to the final day. So. What I'm curious about is, um, and before we talk about, of course, what you and, and the team at Tenet are doing, is you actually started uh, a company post Google. And I want to ask, like, why? What inspired you? And, and were you afraid, you know, losing a, what a lot of people would perceive to be a cushy, stable job at a, you know, company that's not going to disappear overnight to work for yourself? I think that's probably the, the one of the riskiest things that you can do. Uh, versus, you know, leaving company Google and getting another job elsewhere, right? So what inspired you to uh, start your company? Like, how did you feel at that moment? What is an advice that you would, a quick advice that you would give to someone who might be in that situation right now, working at a legacy established company and you're like, you know what, I've been thinking about this idea. I kind of want to do it, but I'm scared. What what would your kind of uh, insights be there? Well, um, it's it's hard because uh, everyone has their own value proposition, you know, about what's important to them personally. For some people, uh, stability and money is important, more so than job satisfaction. For some people, uh, the work culture ranks really, really highly, and for that, you know, a, a place like Facebook or Google, they they work very hard to make sure that that is kept to a high standard of excellence. So for you know. 
for a lot of people, leaving Google isn't necessarily the right thing for them. I think what did it for me was impact. I think the the beautiful thing about software is how effectively it scales. How if you can if you can code something just right, you can touch millions of people's lives. That's not something that's really true in any other industry at such an individual scale. And so what got me out of Google, it's it's the desire to have more impact, to move faster, to to build things that are more meaningful. And most importantly, just a absolutely disgusting egotism, you know, and 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 belief in my own ability to do those things. If you think that you can build a website by yourself from scratch, then it's really frustrating to watch a team try to build a website over the course of six to nine months. You know, it, all of the process that's involved in the in the the movement of large companies. You know, what, okay, why can't we just do this thing? It's like the numbers prove that this works. We should start doing this. Well, like we, you know, we'll try to fit it into our Q3 OKRs and then we'll try to, we need to get cross-functional buy-in from the other team that manages this part of the, you know, of the product scope. And then we'll need to take that back to leadership and get alignment so that we can work it our, into our product direction. But we could just do it. Like, <laughs> why does this have to be so hard? We're slow, and, right? So um, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> so... It's frustrating when you feel like you could build an app from scratch to do something that's very meaningful to people, but instead you're moving proto buffers at Google, you know, or, or like writing code pipelines that transform one set of JSON into another set of JSON to, you know, like that's just your job. So impact mm. and a strong belief in ability and a desire for a higher risk reward ratio. Because if you really believe in yourself and you think that you can do these things, I mean, you might be wrong. Like, first of all, you know, I was wrong a couple of times, a lot of times. But if you really believe that, then you want a higher risk reward, reward ratio around your own performance. You know, if, if you think that you're the bee's knees and the hottest thing since sliced bread, you know, then you want to bet on that. You want to say, if I'm right about that, I want to make $10 million or I want to change the world. And if I'm wrong, I want to make no money. And, you know, if you're familiar with the ex expected value, pro uh, you know, calculation, it's the probability of the outcome times the value of the outcome. And if you believe that you're going to succeed, well, then, like, obviously, you have to, you have to take the startup approach. I'm really glad that, that you talked about how different people can value, have different value systems at their job, right? Some people can value money more, some people can value their team or hiring manager more, the culture more. And so there's really no right or wrong answer. And I think uh, people in your same situation to, for example, when you were working at Google, looking to kind of make that step, I think it's for different reasons people are going to make that decision at the end of the day. But I think certainly having that full-on confident belief in yourself can really help get you through that, that, that those nerves and the, uh, the uncertain, uh, uncertain future that could take place. So again, don't want to focus too much on, on your startup here, but I'm just curious for the honest, how big did you guys get? And is there a reason why you ended up uh, kind of looking for another opportunity after that? Uh, we ran out of money. Mm. You know, that that was ultimately the the thing that I'm not good at uh, um, at a startup. Let me rephrase that. That was the thing that killed us out of the list of things that I'm not good at at a startup um, is, is that uh, we didn't understand how to raise. And I would hesitate to give advice on raising because I've proved that I can't do it effectively. What did you feel uh, like you, you lacked? Or didn't understand. It's a thing that 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 sits on my mind a lot. If I'm you know, gonna be very honest, Preston, and what I uh, what what I tend to believe about it is that we misunderstood how the raising process is supposed to work. I thought that if you if you build something excellent, if you prove that we can do it and we are doing it, and here it is that that equals money, but it's not really about you. It's about the investors and what they're looking for. So we pitched a bunch of times. One of the, the most, uh, one of the pitches I remember the most was pitching to the CTO of Plaid, which is a, a company that provides an aggregated API for financial institutions. They're, they're 
absolutely huge in the finan uh, financial technology space. And his feedback was, where are the users? Um, if you've built all of this, you know, product and platform, where are, where are the users? And I think that that was really insightful for me and that we focused on the wrong things. We focused on building it and making it feature complete. And we didn't focus at all on, on marketing, on user growth, on, you know, on, on trying to attract a user base. And most importantly, we focused on what we thought was important and not what the investors thought was important. We ignored investor feedback about, uh, you know, features we should change or add or how we should pivot the, the app because I thought that it was most important to be true to your vision as a, you know, as a entrepreneur. So maybe it's a little skeptical, but my current belief with respect to uh, VC funding is that, that when you go to pitch, it's an iterative process and whatever, whatever they are buying, and you need to listen to that, to hear what they are buying, that is now what you are selling. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you were selling before. That's now what you're selling. <laughs> You know, it, so if your product has to pivot, then that's what needs to happen. You know, obviously there's, this is a gray area and there's, there's exceptions on all sides of the line. And, but I do know that my approach was way too far on the far side of that line of, of too important to be true to vision and not important enough to listen to investors. Uh, what I like to add to that is I wouldn't be too hard on myself because I think a lot of people would probably have followed the same path. And a lot of them continue to do that, right? It's very easy to think, I'm just going to build something nice. And if it's nice, if it works well, then I should be able to raise. And um, I, I really appreciate you being just honest and brutally kind of honest about like the, that's not what a lot of investors are looking for. And if you want to raise, you have to kind of, it requires a shift in, in, in a mindset and different perspectives. So um, I see a career similar to life as chapters. Everything happens for a reason, Steve. So like, you know, even though it wasn't the outcome that you might at that time have wanted, now you know, and now it just made you all the wiser so that uh, whatever uh, you do in your, in your career down the line, now you can execute with this, with this knowledge that obviously in retrospect is super important, right? And sometimes you just can't learn until you actually try. So I really kudos you for actually trying. I think a lot of people are too afraid to even try in the first place. So you taking that first step, especially leaving a, a job in a company like Google, like a lot of people would probably thought you're, you're, you're crazy to do that. And here you are back on your feet, working at another fantastic company, furthering your, you know, optically just amazing career so far. And, uh, it, uh, I, I think um, a lot of the experiences you went through from your rough start to then just falling into engineering and you just happen to land jobs at Fang and now you start your startup and now you're working at another great company, I think is a career a lot of people would die for. So I just want to, to give you the credit there. Now, um, before we switch gears to talk about Tana, I do want to ask you for two quick things though. What was the, the hardest thing that you had to learn that you didn't, as a founder, when you left Google, that you didn't initially kind of expect or really surprised you? And then what was the hardest kind of lesson that you had to learn, again, from uh, being a, a founder, wearing that captain's hat, and then going back and, you know, working for another company or working for another manager? What were two things that uh, uh, stuck out to you in those experiences? Boy, um, can you give me that second question again? What did you learn or what was the takeaway or was it difficult for you to go from the founder back to a manager again? Mm. As, as I know, it is for a lot of people. And sometimes, you know, once you get that founder experience, all you can think of is I need to start something else. I can't go back and work at another company or work for someone else again. So just want to kind of ask you for your experience. Got it. Um, For the first one, well, I, I, I don't, I don't usually put much stock in holding to Amazon's uh, culture and values, but one thing that I do absolutely believe in is working backwards, mm -hmm. starting from first principles. And that was definitely the hard lesson that I learned um, uh, about uh, startups with, with Anvil. You know, if I was doing it again, uh, now, today, with, with my experience, I would say, okay, day one. Where are the goalposts? The goalposts are, you know, like a, a angel investment. Okay, what do we need to get there? Like, what does success look like? Okay, what do we have to build in order to reach that milestone? 
and not just from a tech perspective, but also from a a product and a networking, you know, and and a, and a relationships perspective. And then whatever that is is what we're going to do. There's um there's this uh, difficulty with 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 like early startup uh, recommendations where I hope the best for everyone and everyone's first startup, but your first startup is probably going to fail, and that's okay. So like you know, make, uh, make an Instagram clone or, you know, do something that you can execute on end to end and, uh, and get experience from doing, and then take that experience to something else. Cause it's so hard to like, it's so hard to take that leap and try making a thing from zero. And it's probably not going to succeed end to end as a result. And so it's just about a phrase I'm really fond of is, is being process oriented, but results driven. So we, we, we are informed by the results, which might be failure, which might be little like sub successes, sub result successes, but, but the ultimate thing that we're trying to improve is the process, you know? So, so I don't, I don't look back and regret Anvil at all because what I got from it is the process. You know, I'm glad that it failed in a lot of ways because it gave me a very concrete result that informed my process of if you don't work work from first principles with your company, you're going to fail. It's a real thing failing. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not like a, you know, the cloud thing that happens to some people, it will happen to you if you don't work from first principles. Um, so that was a hard lesson that I learned from Anvil. I don't regret learning it. And in fact, I think it's made me stronger going to tenant and going from being a founder to being a manager, um, is a very multifaceted question. I think the most important part of joining Tenet for me was the recognition that I can't do everything on my own. In my mind, a startup is about the team. It's it's about the team. It's about the team. It's about the team. If the product is wrong, the team will fix it if you have the right team. And the right team's output is a product of its parts, not a sum. So I found it to be a wonderful experience being part of Tenet because I have partners in this now. Right? I, I have Alex our CEO who has experience pitching, raising for, and, and, you know, launching multiple fintech companies. Um, I have Andreas who is an absolute monster when it comes to like, understanding companies, uh, cross company negotiations, financial projections, um, and just how to run and manage a company at scale. Um, and just an unerring decision-making process that I really admire. And having those people with me makes our conjoined output stronger. Thank you for sharing that. So now talking about Tenet, would you be able to share with the audience, like, what does the company do? Uh, how big is the company? Is there anything exciting you're working on right now with, with respect to the roadmap or any uh, exciting announcements that we can uh, look forward to later this year from you and the team? Yeah. Um, let's see. What does Tenet do? We believe that uh, it's possible to make the sustainable financial decision the uh, the financially compelling one. To break that down, we think that we can take your uh, your auto loan uh, for a you know an Audi A4 and make the cost of buying a Tesla Model 3 cheaper, both in total cost and in monthly payment. We do that by connecting uh, you know cap markets, uh, uh, financiers, and and lenders who are interested in getting ESG assets. Uh, and taking that funding and using it to finance EV loans. The, uh, we're able to wrap in things like the, the federal tax credits, like lower depreciation costs of uh, EVs and some you know kind of other bits and pieces. And ultimately we connect the consumer who wants a cheap loan with the market who wants green assets. Hmm. As a result, we incentivize hundreds, thousands, and, and ultimately, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people to purchase EVs where they would have originally purchased uh, gas vehicles. So I think it plays back a little bit to the statement I made earlier about software, where if you do one little thing right, it can have massive scaled impact. So by simply making this one decision slightly cheaper than the other decision, and then applying that to all consumers in the United States, mm -hmm we can make a real meaningful difference for the planet. Sounds like it. So for people who currently own gas cars, right? Where where can they, what do they learn about tenant? Is it, are, how do you get in front of your users as a company? Is it mainly through like social media, marketing? Do you have physical stores or booths, kiosks? Like how, how does it work with, with the company tenant? 
Boy, um, well, we uh, we do a fair amount of social and uh, and and like paid ads advertising to try to draw users. We do um, blog posts. We do um, kind of what's the word forums? You know, where where uh, Alex will get on a live call with you know maybe you know thirty to a hundred people and just talk about tenants financing and the space and what we're doing and answer questions. And we go to auto shows. Brent, our our head of social is uh, is always um, driving around to like the, the EV auto shows and he'll walk around with a big shirt that says, uh, talk to me about how to make your loan cheaper. No, seriously, talk to me. Uh, he's, he's a real monster when it comes to figuring out how to like scale social engagement. Mm, get it, get those eye rolls, right? Um, I, it's... I would never wear a shirt like that, but, but Trent will. <laughs> he will stop at nothing. So always a time for a first time, Steve. One of these days, perhaps you would dot something on it. Um, that, that's really cool. I mean, I the product and, and your mission speaks for itself. I love the sustainable and green angle to it. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, who are thinking about buying EVs or thinking about switching, that certainly would resonate. What about the specific kind of product really intrigues you as like an engineer? Like, is there... Are you working on a complex or tackling any complex problems right now from an engineering point of view that really just kind of also got you excited to even join Tenet as your next opportunity post or startup? Like what, what about the day-to-day kind of keeps you excited aside from like the great, you know, green mission that the company has? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a combination of things um, because I care about providing value to people whoever those people are. And in this case, you know, the, the value is, is one making a difference, um, you know, at scale through convincing people to make better, more sustainable choices. And it's also getting people like cheaper loans, it's saving people money. And so there are some technically complex problems to be solved there. But for me, like the joy is in solving each one of them, knowing that there is purpose behind it. You know, so if today I have to connect one Postgres database to another one to pipe data about, you know, differences in monthly payments through to this other thing, like, great, because that's going to save people 10 bucks a month. You're like, that's, that's meaningful to me. As for some of the technically complex things that we're trying to solve, I, I think one of the the unique things about these sustainable assets, whether they be like EVs or, or heat pumps or um, solar panels or home batteries, is that they are all being developed with connections to the internet of things. You know, all Teslas have an API. Uh, you can, can you can talk to the car. You can say like, what's your battery status? You know, did you charge recently? Tell me about that. How's the weather? Fords are the same. Chevys are the same. And from this, you can collect telematics data. From that telematics data, you can you can track information about how much the car has charged recently. You can use that cross-referenced with the uh, physical location of the car to know how much was paid for the gas or for the, the electricity that they purchased. Um, you can estimate the maintenance cost and the carbon emissions of the car based on the mileage driven. And you can roll that up all into a total cost of ownership dashboard that shows the consumer, here is your actual financial and carbon impact of the decision that you've made to drive electric in real time. You know, And, and part of that is the financing that we were able to obtain for you via you know, our capital markets partners. And part of that is the difference that you're, you know, between this and the alternative of driving an ICE vehicle. So as that scales, there are other ways that we can save you money. If we know that your car doesn't need to be charged until 8 a.m. tomorrow, and we know that electricity is cheap at 3 to 5 a.m. during the night, you know, we can set up your car to do as much of its charging as possible during that period. We can get you some additional savings and we can roll that up into your dashboard. That's fantastic. I I think the, the real complex problem that we're trying to solve that we get to solve here at Tenet on the engineering team is connecting all of these different pieces together in a way that's cohesive and makes sense. Can you touch a little bit about the internal culture of the company? If people are listening and maybe they're very inspired by the mission and hope to one day, you know, perhaps work uh, on your team or maybe alongside you on a a different team. Um, What would be like the X factor or what really kind of stands out about working at Tenet versus other companies? That's well asked. Let's see. I think at Tenet, first of all, there is a an innate innate bar of competency. Right? We we only hire people that are excellent. You know, it's it's my goal to only hire engineers that are smarter than me and and grow them into leaders. Um, as a result, like the the culture and experience that that you're working as a part of is a culture where everyone every day makes you feel like oh my gosh like that's something I can learn from here you know here's a new way I can be better I would also say that everyone is very driven because we are because we work from first principles um, our first goal is the needs of the company 
and how we get there. Sometimes that means that we're working until 2 a.m. on a Friday, you know, to, to get this new thing out the door before Tesla announces their price decreases. Sometimes it means that it's Tuesday and there's nothing to do, you know, and but I think that the 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 common element there is that it's driven from a common goal of of growing this business and growing this product that we really believe in can make a difference for not just the people that use it, but for the planet. How big is the company in terms of headcount and how big is your team? Uh, we are currently 33 large and my team is, I think, I'm not sure, 12. Mm, wow. It's okay. always... Uh... As you know, very, very difficult to to find the right people, uh, find the, the best excellent people, as you talked about before, and continue to grow and scale and just the very tumultuous market that we've been experiencing the past couple of years. What has been like Tenet's kind of secret in terms of finding and attracting great talent? Like, do you use a lot of different uh, tools and resources, recruiting partners, or, or do you, is it mainly through word of mouth or referrals or all of the above? To some degree all of the above, but I think the real secret sauce at, at Tenet is our interviewing process for engineering. If we are going to restrict the conversation to just talking about engineering. I did whiteboarding interviews at Google for six years. I know all of the things about how they work, how to circumvent them, right? Um, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about tips and tricks for displaying the right values and processes during the interview. I have a whole bunch more. I've written, you know, about a dozen Medium articles about how to do this. And, and I've coached probably 30 to 50 candidates through the entire process. I think the whiteboarding interview process is fundamentally broken. Now let's talk about what does work. Screening is important because some people are just not good candidates and we want to focus on the right ones. So we we get a lot of value out of, you know, a, a 15 minute phone call of just, you know, my my um, director of engineering, uh, Jake gets on the phone with them and asks them a couple questions. And if it seems good, then great. If not, then okay. And then we do a technical assignment. And I, th I think that is the real value of our interviewing process. I think that's what works in today's uh, day and age. We ask you to complete a two-hour kind of take-home technical assessment. Um, you know, here's a very simple, you know, a very simple set of RESTful endpoints. Implement them. And I've set it up in such a way that there are a couple of important decisions to make when you write those endpoints about, you know, do you share a code between this function or that function? And then we bring you in and we interview you for an hour about it. That three-hour, you know, investment of the candidate's time is the entirety of our technical assessment. It's about half or less the length of the interview process for Google, you know, in terms of hours spent in technical assessments. And I think it grades better because that hour of technical screening is, tell us about the code you wrote. Why did you write this piece in this way? What would be some alternatives? Why would you do those? Why wouldn't you do those? Why do you think that? Should you have done this differently? Why? Why not? Okay, we'd like you to extend this one piece a little bit. Um, you know, right, uh, you know, make this small change. Can you do that for us right now in front of us? You know, and, and it's your own code that you wrote. So you should be able to extend it. I don't know of any other company that is doing specifically this right now. Now that may not be the case anymore, but this is net new for us. And I fully believe that it has been the core driver of, of filtering the edge talent that we have brought onto the team, mm -hmm. which has caused Tenet to succeed in the way that it has. If you're planning on hiring uh, for your team, what sort of positions would you hire from the future? And where can people apply? Um, well, you can apply at tenant.com. Uh, we have a careers page that we try to keep up to date. We post those uh, job openings across LinkedIn and uh, across, you know, like other posting sites as well. What roles are we hiring for? Probably none this month because we are kind of trimming down costs in uh, in preparation for going into a Series A. Um, you know, the company is starting to feel like Series A, products are starting to smell like Series A. Um, there's a lot of, you know, well-dressed people that I don't know coming into the office and having meetings with Alex, which is usually a, a good sign. Mm. I would anticipate that within a couple months, we are going to be opening a fairly large hiring round. And that round will be for software engineers uh, with, uh, you know, one or two years of experience um, and for senior software engineers as we look to kind of scale and grow our team. That's exciting. And then for people who are curious about what it's like working for you or Alex, can you just share, like, what is your leadership manager of philosophy? And, and what about Alex and the co-founders? Boy, um, I think uh, one thing that Alex and I share in, in how we drive the company is ruthless prioritization. It's, it's about working backwards from 
the goal. Like, where are we trying to go? How do we get there? What is the critical path? And then being very aggressive and ruthless about cutting out everything that doesn't matter. So yes, we should refactor this part of the system, but we're not going to do it right now because it's not part of how we get to our goal. I think that I've seen Alex evince that in a number of ways across the rest of the company as well. And I think it's part of what sets Tenet up to succeed is that we recognize what's important and we do only that. Are you fully remote or hybrid in the office? What's your stance on that as a company? Uh, we're a hybrid company. Um, so a lot, most of our engineering team is remote um, and uh, I'm in the office about half the time. What do you okay. think about the future of work? It's a loaded question. It really is. Um, I think there's there's valid arguments to both sides. So it's really, really hard to say. Are you asking uh, in terms of just remote versus hybrid context or in general? Yeah. Do you, do you think that most companies will stay remote or come back to in-person? I think, I think there will always be companies now that are going to remain fully remote. I, I think that the market has shown that. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think the right balance, in my opinion, would be some sort of a compromise in between, right? Like a high, some sort of a hybrid, whether it's twice a week or twice a month or or once a week. Um, I think having that kind of physical environment where people can just spontaneously collaborate, bump into each other, just so much easier to have ad hoc and spontaneous discussions and those, those emails and those those slacks that we're all kind of uh, accustomed to. I, I personally, if I had to choose, I, I, I think a hybrid is great. Having said that, I very much enjoyed working remotely as well. Um, I can't, I can't uh, complain about the, the long commute from my bedroom to my, to my, uh, my second kind of office here at home without having to go into the New York City subway all over again. But yeah, to answer your question, I think there's always going to be a, a good activity on both. But uh, I'm also as curious as you are to see how things will pan out over time. What about yourself? Do you, do you think companies will uh, bounce back and, and kind of settle in hybrid? Or do you think they're going to remain remote? Like, want to bring it back to you. What are your thoughts? It seems like there's going to be different uh, different needs across different industries. Mm -hmm. I, I think that a lot of companies that were in person previously could have been remote entirely before, and they may stay that way. Tech in particular can be performed remotely, full stop. I think that I like working in person because I like getting things done quickly. And it's so much faster to be able to talk to someone face-to-face -face and tap someone on the shoulder, bounce ideas off them, workshop stuff, pull someone into a conversation, um, and then execute in, in person. So I, I think I'll always be a proponent of in-person model for myself. That said, you know, we we run almost everything remote at Tenant, and so far it's going splendidly. The real question is if we're gonna remain a five-day work week or we're gonna transition to a four. That, that is actually something I'm curious to see picking up steam or not at all. I know that there is uh, one of the biggest studies done was in UK. I think another big study is taking place here in the States. Only time will tell. Again, very dynamic conversation as well. But uh, seems like a function of, uh, of, of work expectations. Mm -hmm. If you think about the way that I described Google's delegated trust, it's very compatible with a four-day work week. Right. Um, here's what you need done by the end of the week if you do it all on monday and you stay up all night like i don't care you know like i don't care if you don't show up to to any of the stuff except for the mandatory stand-up on friday you got your work done and you're not impeding anyone else's work so like what are we talking about why do i care whether you work nine to five i agree i think forcing someone to work on a friday won't make them work harder right um i think it's all about like you said communicating uh, effectively, like the right expectations and the milestones and the results and giving them that trust and autonomy to just get the job done. Right. And so I, I'm a huge proponent of that. I agree with that sentiment. I actually would not uh, complain about a four day work week at all. Uh, just from the founder's point of view, from even a manager's point of view, I think it could, it could just have great, great benefits um, across a lot of different variables. But, but Steve, I want to just Thank you for your time. And, you know, one of the, I think what you and your team at Tenant are working on is really cool. And it's very timely. It's very relevant to, 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 to our time, to the year 2023 with, with EVs picking up steam and, and they're going mainstream and beyond. And, and a lot of the old legacy uh, gas brands are, are cranking out hybrids and EVs faster than ever now. And so I, uh, I personally, 
own a car. However, sadly, it is gas. But when they aspire to make that uh, jump to EV, perhaps I should look into tenant to see if I can get a cheaper deal on my payments. And maybe you can help with that, Stephen. And if I, if I can personally vouch for you, of course, a lot of other people on the on the podcast would try as well. But I do want to just thank you in this limited time uh, for just opening up and being honest about just everything from how you stumbled upon uh, a career in engineering, how difficult and bumpy it was in the beginning, and a lot of the just very, very insightful and kind of um, unique advice that you gave in, in terms of the, the, your advice uh, when it comes to just experiencing the interviews at, at, at FANG. Um, I think they were just fantastic, by the way. And then you obviously worked on a lot of many other uh, great products that we didn't include because of time restrictions. But I also just want to and uh, grateful for your just startup experience and how, again, how you just continue to be transparent and just openly share about your experience and like the, the, the failures and um, the lessons learned. And of course, now back on your feet, what you are doing at Tenant and excited to see you continue to, to further um progress in your career, but also to see what the company tenant can do um, with with you uh, heading and leading their engineering. And so I personally, I think I'm excited about the mission. I will be rooting for you guys from the side. I'm sure uh, a lot of people are. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you for any reason, whether it's to check out your other Medium articles, to ask for advice, um, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you know, and I try to link most stuff from there. Tenant.com is the place to start for everything about our company. I often find myself starting to uh, answer questions, you know, where I write out a paragraph of text and then realize that it's a paragraph that we've already written on our website. So like, I just, <laughs> um, we've got a very particular mission and we're very focused on it. And, and the more we can get people to read about what we're doing and why it makes sense, I think it sells itself the key is just getting people to know about it. And so I appreciate the time to, to come on and uh, talk about what we've been doing and why it's important. And and I encourage everyone listening to take a look and, and see what we're doing and why it matters. I will finally, you know, close by, by doubling down on something you called out, Preston, that honesty and transparency is the only way to get business done. Um, and it's the only way to run a team. And those are fundamental to how we do things at Tenant. So if you found this conversation to be refreshing um, or different than, you know, how you're used to doing in your day-to-day, -day, reach out, give us a chat. Um, we'd love to talk. This is every day at Tenant. Perfect. Couldn't have ended with final words, Steve. Thank you again for your time. Uh, rooting nothing but success for your, you and your team to continue to crush it in 2023, a brand new year here. And we'll certainly keep in touch. And yes, as Steve mentioned, if you've been listening, please reach out to him. Please check out the company Tenant. And I'm sure you'll be hearing and seeing a lot more uh, with what they're working on. So grateful for your time, Steve. Thank you so much. And we'll keep in touch. You bet. It's always nice to chat with you, Preston. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe for other great stories that are coming up. If you need any help with hiring, know of anyone who's looking for a job or would like to be a guest on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at www.kickstartfinder.com. Really, really appreciate it, and we'll see you on the next one.